0: Welcome back to the Paul Suck Podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. In this week's episode, we're going to get down into the weeds with human rights in Ireland. This is the first part of two interviews with Irish Human Rights and Equality Commissioners. Today's episode, recorded under lockdown in February 2021, starts at the very top with Chief Commissioner Sinead Gibney, who's going to explain to us the various roles fulfilled by the IHREC, or IREC, as all of the people in the know seem to call it. The second episode to follow in coming weeks is with another new Commissioner, Dr Lucy Michael, who will help us to get to grips with how human rights in Ireland interacts with the United Nations human rights system more broadly, before giving us some particular insights into how she would view some of the very specific requirements of the politics and society subject specification when it comes to human rights. Well worth a listen for both students and teachers, I hope. One important thing that I'd ask students to be aware of as they listen to this episode is that they should always bear in mind that none of the human rights institutions that we study are sufficient in and of themselves to understanding human rights. And indeed, those institutions are often designed to interact with other domestic, European and international organisations. Nor should students think about IREC as being disembodied from the issues with which it deals. The case studies that you can find on the IREC website and indeed those mentioned by Chief Commissioner Gibney, are equally significant because if human rights aren't being pursued actively on the ground, they cease to lose much of their impact. And we should, above all, be trying to avoid regressing, going backwards in our understanding of and engagement with human rights. As ever, there'll be a wide range of additional resources and materials available to download on the website www.polsockpodcast.com, most useful of which will be our listen-along guide, which both students and teachers alike tell me is the most useful resource that we provide. Anyway, there's lots to cover, so let's dive in. I wanted to start off with some of the basics by asking Chief Commissioner Gibney to give us a brief insight into what the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission actually is and what some of its key responsibilities are.
1: So the IHRC is the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, and it has been in existence for six years now, but uh, it's, is, it brought together two other organizations who were both established around about the 2000 mark, so I like to think of it really as more like a 20 year old organization, um, and it is a national human rights, we are the national human rights institution and the national equality body for Ireland, which means that we have very specific roles in protecting and promoting human rights and equality in Ireland. So that's our, what we call our mandate that's laid out in the legislation that uh, founded the organisation and which really kind of sets out what we do and how we do it. So protecting and promoting human rights and equality is the primary thing and then encouraging a development, the development of a culture of respect for human rights, equality and intercultural understanding. And really to to explain that, I suppose it's about promoting these values within Irish society. Uh, I think it's really important that we influence uh, public debate and public discourse around these particular topics and bring these areas of human rights and equality and intercultural understanding into a more mainstream area, I suppose, because human rights and equality is obviously people who work in the sector are big fans of it and we live and breathe it and we've often been working in it for quite a long time. Uh, But it's about helping the rest of the population uh, understand why it's really important to build a society that's just and inclusive.
0: As you know, I'm a bit of an historian, so I'm always looking to put things into a bit of historical context. So I asked Chief Commissioner Gibney how the human rights landscape has changed in Ireland over the 20 years of IREC and its predecessor organisation's lifetime. Here's how she described that process.
1: I would say it's changed a huge amount in those 20 years. I mean, one of the things that happened around the same time as well was the introduction of really of our equality laws here in Ireland, the Equality Status Act and the Equality Employment Act, um, and they have developed over those 20 years. We have a particular role to play in enforcement of that law, and i i would say i mean you know in more recent years the two referenda are really big milestones that we've hit in terms of human rights and equality in ireland and i think the organizations themselves have just done what they set out to do essentially and bringing it more into the mainstream mainstream and making people more aware and that's done in lots of different ways i mean you know education in schools for example um, uh, helping people develop the skills that they need um, to to carry out this work but i do think You know, we've got to a certain point, I suppose, and I think it's really critical that we also keep an eye on what we have to do.
0: On your behalf, I pressed Chief Commissioner Gibney and asked her what those areas might be.
1: Um, So I think, for example, one of the big areas that we still need to do a huge amount of work on is uh, traveller rights. The difference in outcome for people who are born into the Traveller community compared to people who are not is really quite stark. People have much less likelihood of, of enjoying employment and education to the same degree as, as others do in the state. Um, they have much worse health outcomes, much worse mental health outcomes. Uh, so we have a huge amount to do in, in tackling that. Um, and that's not even to talk about, just the daily uh, stigma and discrimination that people experience who are from the Traveller community. So so that would be one of the big areas that I think we need to look at, um, and similarly the rights and equality of people who come to Ireland through what we now call the international protection system. So these are people who um, are coming to the state, fleeing countries where their security um, and safety is not certain anymore. Uh, And they come to Ireland and unfortunately at the moment their experience in Ireland is not good. Um, They're remaining in the system too long in terms of processing their their application for protection. And, And while they're in that system, they're the, the the standard of living is 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 not okay um so we've been doing a lot of work recently for example on on enforcing the right to work for people in the international protection system and although we've had you know big milestones reached in terms of uh you know establishing in the supreme court that there is a right to work for this group and legislation that then underpinned that, We do have other kind of smaller issues that really prevent people from working. So, for example, it's not possible to get a driving license or a bank account for people in this system or for many people in this system, which means that even if you have the right to work, it's impossible to make that right a reality because you can't uh, get to the places you need to to access that work or, you know, have the simple setup. So so I think we we have done a lot in the last couple of decades um, as a country and a lot to celebrate. And I think, you know, I mean, to go back to the referenda you know, one of the big things that I think those achieved was just that greater awareness, that greater discourse, so like hearing, for example, from children of uh, same-sex families talk about their positive experience and and reaching into the homes of all of the people across Ireland who were listening to that debate was just such a powerful force in terms of, you know, realizing that the rights of those people uh, to love who they choose to love was being denied. So, you know, it just, I think we've done a lot in terms of that awareness piece and 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 development, um, but but plenty more to do.
0: So it's worth bearing in mind that in the interim between the recording and editing of this episode, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, who joined us in our episode on children's rights, you'll remember, released a white paper on the ending of the direct provision system. IREC were quick to respond to the white paper, but it'll be up to you to track how that process develops between now and December 2024, which is the point by which the government promises that the process will be completed. Untangle the terminology means understanding the tricky words. As Chief Commissioner Gibney notes, there's a lot of work to do in human rights law, and it's worth bearing in mind what happens before a law is fully introduced, and where the input of Sinead and her fellow commissioners might be brought to bear. So let's untangle the terms green paper and white paper. A green paper is a discussion document usually written by civil servants, in which an issue is outlined, various options are suggested, and the advantages and disadvantages of those options are weighed up. Generally, the public is asked for submissions on the options proposed, or to come up with suggestions of their own. After this process is completed, a white paper is drawn up. This sets out the government's policy on the issue, what it intends to do. The proposals in this much more specific and detailed white paper are then implemented. However, it's not always a rigid process that's set in stone. And sometimes the process isn't as smooth as all that. Sometimes a white paper is published without a preceding green paper. Sometimes the process gets to a fairly detailed stage, but nothing happens after the white paper is published. Maybe the government falls before it can pass the law. That's why, if there's a policy that you think is important, like the ending of the direct provision system, It's important to keep the pressure on until all the T's are crossed and all the I's have been dotted. Many of the more informed POSOX students will already know that one of our key thinkers, Kathleen Lynch, was recently appointed as an IREC commissioner. But for me that really prompted the question, who makes up the commission and what do the individual commissioners do?
1: the commission is made up of of 15 members seven men seven women and then the chief commissioner who at the moment is myself and I happen to be a woman and the 15 members are drawn to represent Irish society a cross section of Irish society and also to bring to the commission the required skills that we need to run the organization um, and and to to, to do what we need to do so for example we need legal skills there's just no question we have a lot of legal powers to execute so we need people who have experience in in practicing law and in, in studying law for example we would also have people who are leaders in the civil society space, so people who head up NGOs or work in NGOs, or activists and academics of of other disciplines as well, not just law. And then the other kind of, if you like, the other kind of representation that we seek is not just these expertise and skills, but also people who have lived experience of, for example, racism international protection itself people who've been through that system people with disabilities members of the traveler community so those are also things that we that we seek but the the, the process of recruitment is done by uh, the public appointment service which is a, a kind of an organ of the state if you like or an organization within the state who handles public sector recruitment so they recruit the commissioners um, including the chief commissioner i'm the only one who's full-time so i i i get a full-time job out of it which is great uh, everybody else <laughs> um is is you you know, equivalent to, to what i would describe as a board member so they attend meetings um and attend subcommittees and then would uh be involved with certain specific projects throughout their time on the on the commission there's actually a huge amount of time required from commissioners how the commission is constituted is is something that will evolve over time as well so in other countries for example new zealand there are four full-time commissioners rather than the one full-time and the many part-time if you like so there's different models for this and it doesn't necessarily have to stay as it is it will potentially evolve over time as the commission we we determine the work of the commission so we set in place the strategy every three years we have to set a strategy in place and we're about to start that process now and actually although we have this what we call a statutory obligation like we have to do the three year strategy to, to meet our our legal requirements what i'm also going to do is look forward into longer term goal setting so think about really over the next five, 10, 20 years what are the big human rights and equality milestones that we need to see happen in Ireland? And what I'm trying to do by kind of stretching that thinking into a longer-term piece is not necessarily set in place for future commissions the work that they have to do. That's not fair or realistic, but at least kind of set a North Star, if you like. You know, if we really thought, for example... I'm just picking this as a random example, but that we wanted to see social and economic rights realised in the Constitution. So a constitutional basis for people to be able to recognise their economic rights in Ireland. That that is a long term goal. That's not something that's going to be achieved in three years. It's not something that we would even be looking to achieve as ourselves. It's, but it's an area of work that we could look to build into our strategy and look to understand Um, how we could bring good human rights and equality thinking into into such an objective. Part of my role as Chief Commissioner is is the spokesperson, essentially, for the organisation, which is a role I really enjoy and, uh, you know, something I'm I'm looking forward to doing more and more of. But sometimes I also need the voice of some of the expertise that exists on the commission. And it's great to be able to draw on people and bring them into those opportunities. So, for example, if we're required or we're invited to uh, present to a committee within the Oireachtas about a particular human rights and equality element, of an issue um it's great to be able to bring people in who have that lived experience of disability to be able to talk about it not just from the the kind of human rights and equality theory but actually in real life this is what happens to me and You know some of the the, one of the most really important principles of both human rights and equality is participation um the the voice of people who have lived experience nothing uh with nothing about us without us um are really important ways that we need to influence how policy is made in the state and, and that's one of the things we do
0: it's time for quote of the day This week I'm stealing the quote of the day straight from the idea Chief Commissioner Gibney mentioned just a few moments ago. Nothing about us without us. Maybe this sounds a little bit like a modern slogan but it's actually a phrase that has its roots in the early 1500s and even has a fancy Latin version. Nihil de nobis sine nobis. But unless you're really pretentious like me the English will more than suffice. Why do I want to re-emphasise it here? Well, it embodies the spirit of inclusivity. It's a phrase that we associate particularly with the rights of people with disabilities and ethnic minorities, but it really encompasses any group of marginalised people. People who are pushed off to the side like the margins of your A4 refill pad. And what I'd really want you to think about is how this phrase can bridge the gap between human rights and power and decision-making two core aspects of our course. Because it's more than just a slogan, it's a principle used to communicate the idea that no policy should be decided by anybody in political power without the full and direct participation or input of the members of the groups that will be affected by the policy. It's a matter of respect and recognition. But you know what? It's more than that. Not doing this, not including the perspective of marginalised groups in decisions that will have a direct bearing on their lives, shows both a profound arrogance and a distinct lack of imagination. But it's also a total own goal, because you're cutting off a group of experts, people who are experts in their own lives. And who better to solve a problem in our own lives than ourselves? I suppose we might hope that, in a more fully representative democracy, this phrase might one day be rendered obsolete redundant, because the voices of those people would already be heard in the parliaments of the world. But in the meantime, let's keep it going and help to raise the voices of those who are too often drowned out by the powerful. The human rights landscape in Ireland is obviously quite complex, so I asked Chief Commissioner Gibney if she could give us some insight into the relationship between IREC and the other organisations in Ireland, like the government, the statutory bodies, the ombudsman, NGOs and civil society groups. Here's how she explained that relationship.
1: We have a regulatory function in terms of holding to account the government on on its human rights and equality activities. And that's really the key part of, of what we do and kind of the key way that I would describe our relationship with the state. But I suppose one of the things I'm trying to do as well is also is really establish us as a collaborative organization as well. So we enjoy what I would describe as a high level of independence. So state agencies are created in Ireland to carry out certain activities. And our one has to have a high level of independence. And what we mean by that is if we are controlled by government, we don't have the the right setup to then hold the government to account. So in the way we're constituted, how we're funded, how we're organized, all of the ways that what we call governance determines how the organization is run means that we can do that. And I think that also brings with it the freedom to then collaborate so to say to government you know if you need human rights and equality expertise and help and assistance with certain issues we can potentially help you on that so so that's kind of how I would say our relationship is is, is or is is becoming with you know with government and um and within the state is establishing ourselves as as that group who spots and monitors constantly uh, how human rights and equality is you know is 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 embedded into policy practice and legislation within the state but also about helping so it's not just about saying that's not how you do it it's about saying this is how you do it I suppose because I see in other countries how that is a better balance you know that that I think within Ireland we are referred to as human rights watchdog for example in all of the headlines that you'll see and and that's fine we are a watchdog and we need to be perceived and seen as a watchdog because because we watch over uh, state activity on human rights and equality but sometimes I think that prevents us from being able to work closely on, on, you know, in areas where I think we can bring real value. And then with other bodies, I mean, with civil society groups, we have a really strong network of and, and kind of collaboration with civil society groups within Ireland. So we have various ways in which we connect with the NGOs um, um, in this sector, if you like, in, in terms of human rights and equality. And so many NGOs do have uh, a human rights and equality framework or or mandate themselves so we provide funding and we have we have grant um, programs that run every year and we normally kind of theme them in different ways and but we also do lots of other things so we try and kind of bring together NGOs in in different ways um, on particular items or themes or conferences and so on we really rely on NGOs as well in terms of bringing issues to our attention and again I think that's a relationship that I would like to see strengthened further in terms of you know the people who work in in civil society and NGOs are really on the front line of a lot of the issues that we want to move on and we need to understand you know what's happening with the what we call rights holders the people who are affected by these issues and oftentimes it's the ngos and civil society who work most closely with them so we need them to come to us and help us understand what trends are emerging and so on and and also to amplify the work that they do and i think it's a really important understanding that we have to make sure that you know that we occupy a very specific Place and a, and a, and a, a role in, in the state infrastructure, if you like. And it's really important that we make sure that the value that is brought to society by civil society, by NGOs and the work that they do is, is understood, is understood by government and the broader public, um, and to make sure that we, we continuously acknowledge that work um, and, and make sure that we, we amplify it wherever we can. And then in terms of the other organisations like ombudsman's and, and offices and so on, I would say we have very good working relationships. You know, I think part of my role as chief commissioner is to kind of maintain and develop those relationships where possible. And depending on a particular issue that we might be working on, we'll reach out to and build relationships with the particular agency that might relate to it. So if it's something in the health space, we might be looking at HICWA. If it's something in the children's space, we might be looking at the ombudsman for children um, and so on. So we would then you know, a big part of my role is just kind of making sure that that network is live and maintained and tended to um, and, you know, and, and kind of making sure that we can work effectively with those groups.
0: So now that we understand how IREC fits in in Ireland, let's try and finish the jigsaw puzzle by putting it into a broader international context or framework.
1: As a national human rights institution, one of the things that we do is connect Ireland as a country to the network of uh, groups who work on human rights and equality at a global level. So the, the UN plays a particular role in monitoring how countries are human rights compliant. And we have a particular role in helping them to do that. So we will draw attention to, for example, the the activity on a particular issue that they examine Ireland under. Um, And and we provide reporting and international treaty reporting, we call it, on that particular topic at that time. And that's kind of a very specific role we have as as an NHRI. Because we're in Europe, there are lots of European bodies who also have a role to play in human rights and equality. So you mentioned the Council of Europe, and there's plenty more, and they all have really confusing acronyms and all the rest. Uh, but there is the Fundamental Rights Agency, for example, the European Court of Justice. There's so many you know, different organizations. And one of the reasons that, that there are so many organizations, I think, is, is I suppose that the, the, the the importance of that kind of layer of 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 monitoring and the layers of monitoring and making sure that there is independence enough to to keep that monitoring um effective and i mean i suppose it might seem at times that there is some redundancy or some bureaucracy indeed um involved in it i mean i would say human rights like any other area and equality are areas that are evolving and i do think it's important to reflect and make sure that we are setting things up in in a certain way and and that things operate in a way to everybody. I mean, for me, I think it's really, really important to make sure that human rights and equality are concepts and frameworks that are accessible to people in their everyday lives. So I want people to understand how human rights and equality impact them. And then all of the rest, I would say you need to understand them as and when you need to access them, if you see what I mean. So I don't think it's necessary to map out the whole complex network of organisations that feed into human rights and equality. It's much more important to start from where you are as an individual and think about the human rights that you want to enjoy, the equality that you want to see in the world, and then how can those different organisations feed into that.
0: That being the case, how is it that the general public primarily interacts with IREC then?
1: First and foremost is a program we have called Your Rights, a function, um, and Your Rights is a, an information service. So we help people understand what their uh, rights are, how their quality is, is enjoyed and realized. Um, and you can access that by uh, visiting the website at irec.ie slash your hyphen right. And there's a phone line as well that people can call. So we have a really good um, way of understanding what are the prevalent issues that are facing Irish society because people call in with them and talk to us about them and we are able to help provide information um on those different queries and um information that people are seeking and a lot of the time we might be sending them elsewhere so sometimes you know the issue might be something that we can provide a certain amount of information but actually the right agency to give them satisfaction in terms of their query might be a whole other organization the other way that people would access the commission is to seek legal assistance so we have a bunch of different what we call functions so different kind of tools if you like in our toolbox to uh, allow us to protect and promote human rights and equality in Ireland and those different tools are policy tools, their engagement tools and their legal tools and one of the ways that people would kind of come to us if you like in that that frontline experience is to ask for assistance in a particular human rights or equality infringement that they're experiencing and we obviously have a huge amount of requests so we can't give everybody legal assistance but we have an application process which allows us to consider their uh, application and then provide that assistance in certain cases.
0: In this week's Students Strike Back, I set my students the task of trying to dig up some working definitions of some of the big human rights ideas that we see mentioned on the subject specification. What it means for rights to be universal, inalienable, and indivisible. Bearing in mind that this was the students' very first class on human rights, here's how Connor, Oleg, Lily, and Ibrahim explained those concepts to me. Firstly, rights being universal. Human rights are, uh, are universal because we, si- we have them simply because we exist as human beings. And uh, that's regardless of, you know, our ethnicity, our age or our gender, our sexual orientation. And this can be seen in, in the UDHR in Article 1, where it says that all human beings are born free, free and equal in dignity and rights. Oleg and Lily took the tricky idea of the inalienability of rights. I'd say that no one can just take them away or, like, give them away.
1: Inalienable rights or natural rights are protected by the government. They cannot be repealed through laws. Um, And, for example, with the American Declaration of Independence, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness.
0: And finally, Ibrahim explains what it means for rights to be indivisible. While human rights are indivisible because they are interdependent, this means that one set of rights cannot be enjoyed fully without the other. For example, making progress in civil and political rights make it easier to exercise economic, social and cultural rights. Hmm, not too bad. I think you'll agree for a first foray into human rights. But I'll give the final word to Chief Commissioner Gibney, bring together some of those big human rights ideas for us by asking her what kind of influence she thinks that IREC actually has over that other big Polsock idea, the process of power and decision-making.
1: We have, like I said, these different tools that we use to bring to bear the, the work w- that we have to do. Um, within the policy space, we have a lot uh, of, of, of different roles in terms of just making sure that legislation is human rights and equality proofed is the way we describe it. So making sure that people are thinking about human rights and equality. I t- briefly mentioned the public sector duty, which is a way in which organizations in the public sector now have to think about human rights and equality when they do their work. So those are some of the kind of tangible ways that we, that we do that, but it is hard to quantify. That. and I think that's one of the things that I would like to do. I mean there's just spaces available to us as a national human rights institution and as a national equality body that are not open to other people. There are rooms that we can be in and tables that we can sit at which do allow us to influence power and decision making in, in a way that other organizations can't and in a way that the general public can't. So we take very seriously that Privilege, and one of the things that I think is really important for us as an organisation is to consider those people who have the least voice in Irish society, and therefore our obligation to to provide a voice where we can, and how we can for those people. So, I mean, power and decision making is such an important concept to to get your head around because it really only when you see how power works that you can understand your own oppression and privilege. And I think those kind of forums, those rooms, and and spaces that we can be. Is probably one of the biggest ways that we have uh, influence over parent decision making.
0: Well, we will leave it at that for this week, except to offer an enormous thanks to Chief Commissioner Sinead Gibney for taking the time out of what's obviously an incredibly busy and significant role to speak with us. For my part, I'm looking forward to the day when one, one of you, a Paulsack student, is sitting in Sinead's chair helping to guide Ireland's progress in human rights and equality. What better role model could we ask for? I do hope you'll take the time to have a good rummage on both the IREC website and on our own www.polsockpodcast.com for all the additional case studies and resources that you can use to take this overall description and make it real and tangible for you as a Pulsock student. So, I'll end as I do every week by reminding you that you're not apart from society You're a part of society. See you next time.